Lord, we're excited to gather again and to see your hand uh, in these words and to hear your voice in these words, to understand more of who you are as we read them and then understand more of what you are calling us to as we live in this world and are, we, uh, and are marked as your people in this world. We thank you for the way that you worked in the Israelites and for your deliverance of them and then the way that you taught them what it means to follow. And yet, Lord, we know that they failed again and again and again. And, and Lord, so do we. But for your grace, what hope would we have? And so we draw our attention, Lord, to the, uh, the, the focal point of all of these verses as well. Your Son, Jesus Christ. Our hope, our joy, our confidence. It's in His name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with really part one of a two-part series moving from Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, through the end of chapter 23, right in there, the end of chapter 23, and I want to kind of frame this with this, this theme that we are a people set apart, a holy people called by God, called out of our slavery, called into a walk with him that should be defined then by who he is. And we're going to see a number of things in these verses ahead. Uh, some of them are going to make you scratch your head, as I did this past week. Some of them are going to make you have questions. And I would encourage you to dig. There are far more things to be said than can fit in a couple of sermons here in the next few weeks. So be a student of God's Word. My goal is to uh, do my best to frame a context and give us a, a working operation of these verses to understand them and then live them. That's my goal here. A people set apart. I want to begin uh, by focusing on why is it that God came to deliver his people. Well, they were in slavery. He heard their groans. He heard the burden and, and the horrible uh, condition that they were in in Egypt and their prayers. And he came to deliver them, but he delivered them for a purpose. They were set free to worship him. Let my people go that they may serve and worship me. So we are similarly set free to worship and obey. And what I want to do is build this out. So a different way of worship. Uh, a, a people set apart from that which th is surrounding them. They are to worship differently than what they have come out from. The Egyptians who had all their pantheon of gods and we looked at all of how the Lord humiliated and, and humbled that whole thing. But they are also to worship differently than the land that they are going to take the land of Canaan, and all of the Canaanites that live there. A different way to worship. So let's pick this up in verse 18. just want to read 18 to 26 here, and we'll, we'll examine these verses. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us. Then we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off 
while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And so we move into this, this transition here. We're moving from the giving of the Ten Commandments, which was a, a given by direct vocal communication, not just to Moses and Aaron and the elders, but to all of Israel. You remember the, uh, the trembling and the, the fear. You, you speak to us, Moses. Don't let God speak to us anymore. We are scared to death. If this continues, we're dead. What's interesting about this is their fear of the Lord. We, we talk about this all the time. There is a rightful fear of the Lord, right? There's a good fear of the Lord. This fear is a different kind of fear than the fear that God desires. This is a fear that backs away. They are shrinking back. They are standing as far off as they can from the Lord. That's not what the fear of the Lord should cause us to do. Listen to how Moses responds. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that you may fear him. You see that? We're, we're distinguishing fears here. Stop backing away, Israel. Don't fear like that. Fear like this. This terror which is struck in your heart as you witness the awesome power of God on display, His voice speaking to you, that terror should stir you to draw near and obey, to revere Him, to listen to His words, and then do them with your whole heart. That's the kind of fear that pleases the Lord. A fear that shrinks back is a fear that, in a sense, says, I don't want to hear anymore. A fear that draws near is a fear that says, I love these words. I need these words. I will obey these words. It's a very big difference. We want to be a people who fear the Lord and draw near to Him in that way. The question is, will they listen? Will they obey? They look to Moses to be the mediator. You, you talk to him. So somehow you're brave enough to do it. You're comfortable with it. I don't know how you do it, but that's what you do. You tell us what he says and we'll be okay. And so Moses then becomes that intermediary again to bring God's word to the people. Uh, a shadow of Christ and his mediatory mission for us. What's fascinating about this is how specific the Lord is to give these commands in testing the people. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, you sh nor shall you make uh, for yourselves gods of gold. How much more clear does the Lord need to be? He's already given commandments one and two that prohibit this. 
then he adds this in. It's, it's just to say, if there's any confusion about this golden calf that's coming in chapter 32, let it be known right up front. Don't do it. Will they listen? Will they obey? The answer is, if you read ahead, no. They fail miserably. Hmm. Altars and sacrifices. God is a God who takes very serious the worship that we are to give. But it is not just a worship that we just trot up to and offer with our own uh, thinking, well, this is how I should worship God. I should do it this way. Or I feel like I should worship Him this way. God says, you are to worship me in the way that I prescribe to you. That's the way that honors me. This is the way you are to worship. Reminding us even to, to lay a hand and shape a stone is to bring unclean hands to a stone that was otherwise unblemished before we sought to chisel and shape it. What an amazing thing. We bring sin to the equation we need sacrifice. Blood must be shed. A payment must be made. Every single sacrifice made in the Old Testament foreshadowed the sacrifice that the Father God would make of His only Son. There is no uh, power in any of this animal sacrifice if it did not have a focal point too that sacrifice which was to come, the fulfilling sacrifice, the one that made all of it a reality rather than just a shadow. And so the opening verses, the transition. Now, I was thinking how important it is to remind ourselves of the context because for a number of weeks, we were looking through the Ten Commandments week by week. And let's just back up again and remind ourselves of the context of these commandments. We're moving into case law. We're moving into the kind of law that says, if this happens, then do this. This is how you are to interact in this situation. So moral law, Ten Commandments, now case law built out for the people. The context of God's commandments. It's important to have this as kind of an overarching reminder. You have been delivered in order to obey, not you must obey in order to be delivered. You see the difference there? It's so, it's so big. It's the difference between uh, true evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholicism, for example. Law-keeping is not how we gain our salvation. Law-keeping is the fruit that hangs on the tree of one who is saved. Right? We obey out of the roots of our salvation. If you plant a tree upside down, it will not bear fruit. The roots will be sticking up and the branches will be in the dirt. Nothing good will happen. You can try it in your garden. Be a good experiment, kids. Oh, how easy it is to confuse these things. So important to keep them straight. We are justified by the work of God. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. He's the worker. He's the one who does it all. And from that place, we are then called to be a holy people. Be holy now. You are redeemed. You are delivered. Now I'm teaching you how to live, how to walk. So important. 
I heard a, a guy describe these passages as contrast living, and I love that phrase. That's a great way to describe it. It's contrast living. Believers, God's people, are to be those who pursue contrast living. Not just being different to be different, but being those who reside in this world as aliens and strangers, foreigners. We follow the Lord, not the culture around us. Contrast living is what he's calling his people to. Don't be like the Egyptians where you're coming from or like the Canaanites in the land where you're going. You be my people. Live in contrast to them. Even as, as, as light is against darkness. Don't yoke to the dark. Social justice and righteousness are to matter to God's people. This contrast living is not just a vertical interaction between how we relate to the Lord. It now moves to how we interact with one another. What does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? How am I to obey the Lord in these exchanges? Social justice and righteousness matter to God, and they are to matter to us. Now, what is the primary mission of the church? It is the gospel to the ends of the earth. Not just the saving gospel, but the transforming gospel so that we present people complete, established in Christ, all the way to the end, as the book of Hebrews calls us to persevere to the end in your faith. Keep believing all the way through. Second to that, then, is the transformation that happens when the gospel hits the scene. It changes things. It changes things. And so it matters that we are engaged. It matters that we use our voice to speak into the dark. God can accomplish incredible things through His people raised up to shine bright in dark lands. We can help shape policy. We can help vote people who have uh, character into office, who make decisions that please the Lord rather than decisions that completely fail to acknowledge the Lord. Social justice and righteousness are to matter to God's people. Love for God and love for neighbor. These echo again in all of these commands. Love for God and love for neighbor. So we move into this. A, a different way to relate is how I would say so First, a different way to worship, now a different way to relate. And right out of the gate, you have a section in chapter 21 titled, Laws About Slaves. And you're like, well, okay, all right. That's kind of a tough transition. You know, Ten Commandments, these big, sweeping, incredible things, and now into Laws About Slaves. And you read these verses, and you're like, wow, um, it's kind of different. I heard someone say, oh, it would be tempting to skim these chapters or skip these chapters. I was amazed how few sermons I could find by faithful preachers that I've studied and, and, and benefited from. Many of them move from chapter 20 to chapter 32. And I'm like, wait a second. There's a lot of stuff in between those chapters. So we're going to go there. We're going to look at what God says about these things. We have in the Israelites a people that I would describe as, at this point in their history, 
they are poised to exploit. Poised to exploit. Why is that? Well, for 430 years, they were on the receiving end. This is what they know. They understood what it was like to be enslaved. They knew the horrors of what Egyptian uh, slavery had done in their ranks. And don't think for a minute that that doesn't shape. They are a people now with power, freedom. And they are looking for something to own a land. The, the promised land is there. How are they going to relate to one another? How are they going to relate to those that they conquer? They're poised to exploit. If ever slavery was about to explode on the scene in a very ugly way, it might have come through the, the hand of the Israelites, the people who had a bit of a chip on their shoulder from what they had experienced in Egypt. I just want to stop and just say here categorically how much I personally and how much as believers we all should detest racism and the slavery that we have in our history as a nation. We live in times that, that boggle my mind. That, that this lingers still. That there would still be displays of racism and divide over things that are so clear and wrong. i give you a bit of a context for slavery in history because it has been a blight upon the history of mankind. Sin in the heart of man will move one man against another man and it will show itself in ugly ways. Kevin DeYoung did a great job kind of boiling down a history. I just want to read you what he wrote and, uh, and then uh, that'll give us some context for this. Slavery in its various forms has been a near constant throughout human history. We know the cruelties associated with the transatlantic slave trade of the 16th through the 19th centuries, but we're less familiar with what slavery looked like elsewhere. So what I want to do is, is help us build out our our, our, our view and understanding of slavery, not just by what we would see immediately and our stomachs would turn over, right? Transatlantic slave trade, that is what we think of when we see the word slave or master. Uh, it's far greater than just that. For instance, a million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates from over about the same time period. During the Middle Ages, the Slavic people, or Slavs, were so frequently indentured by other Europeans, and sometimes Muslim countries, that they coined the word slave from Slav. Slavery existed among Asians and Polynesians in China and India, among Africans and in the Western Hemisphere long before the Europeans arrived. For most of history, people tended to enslave those who were like them. Asians enslaved Asians, Africans, Africans. People in the Western Hemisphere enslaved others in the Western Hemisphere. Europeans enslaved Europeans. At the time of the Middle Ages, Christians were enslaved by stronger Muslim nations. But by and large, it was not until more modern colonial periods that slavery began to take on racial tones. Now, I would say that is a generalization because we have here, even in our own immediate context, the Jews enslaved by the Egyptians a people 
enslaved by a different people. Uh, there are many examples, so I don't want to just uh, boil it down too far. But I do appreciate the distinction here of what happens when racism is inserted into the slave trade. Horrible things. In particular, it was when white Europeans settled the Americas and began enslaving black Africans in large numbers that slavery took on a racial caste. Listen to the numbers now. By the beginning of the American colonies, the transatlantic slave trade was a vital link connecting Europe, North Africa, and North and South America. Nearly 11 million Africans in total landed in the Americas as slaves. Usually they were enslaved and sold by other Africans. That was new to me. I did not know that. Sometimes on their own initiative and many times enslaved against their will. Now, the most common point of disembarkation was Brazil. Almost 5 million of those slaves brought from Africa were taken to Brazil for slavery against their will. The next most common ports were British Caribbean, Spanish America, the French Caribbean, and mainland North America in that order. In fact, it's estimated that 388,000 slaves landed here over the course of the slave trade. That's a relatively small number from what I would have assumed to be the number of slaves brought from Africa to the, the colonies or to uh, the colonial America. How did it grow to be the number that it is or that it was? The slave population in America was largely due to reproduction. By the 1860 census, there were 4 million slaves in the United States. While the severity of slavery varied from place to place, some were somewhat familiar arrangements and others were extremely cruel. The fact is that it existed because people were forcibly taken, sold, and transported and raised against their will to be slaves. The carnage of such activities still ripples through our fabric, the fabric of our society. Shootings. Shootings because of shootings. Hatred. Horrible, angry, hate-filled groups rising up and thinking somehow that they are superior because of the pigment in their skin or the lack thereof. This is not biblical. God hates it. And so should we. I, I am sick and tired of racism. I would long for more of a voice in this area even, among the ethnicities that surround us, for the gospel to come and just be that, that unifier. Hmm. Let me just be clear about what the Bible says about the transatlantic slave trade. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So to be clear, that is capital punishment for anyone participating in, harboring, and actively enslaving people against their will, especially those who are taken from their home and 
thrown into horrible ships and then drug across the Atlantic to be sold as property. We struggle to feel the generational impact of those horrors. And I think we do well as those who are white, Caucasian, to be a little slower to speak, a, a little quicker to listen. Tell me what it's like. I learned so much in inner city Chicago. I had a couple guys on my floor, it was 30 white guys and a couple of black guys. I'm so proud of them for what they did and, and how much I learned from them. And then to go and be a part of an inner city black church for a couple years in downtown Chicago, oh, it's so good for me. I didn't have categories that I needed to think biblically about this. We need to grow in this. The gospel has as its consummation. This is not uncertain. This is a certain future that God has ordained and is bringing to pass. Here's what it is. Sinners saved, ransomed by the blood of Jesus from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So if you've got an issue right now, I guarantee you you're going to have an issue for eternity. Let's just get over this racial divide and embrace our brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Slavery in the Bible. One of the things that we have to have in our minds, however, when we come to the Bible, is that slavery in the Bible is not the same as what comes to mind as we think about our own history. This is very difficult. I wrestled with this all week long because what I think of slavery, when I hear the word slave, master, you know, all of these things, I, I just, I don't like it. Slavery in the Bible was different. In most cases, and we're going to see as we go through these, these verses, it, it was primarily or at least functionally indentured servitude. Slavery in the Bible was not a result so much of race. It was a result of economics. People who were poor, who could not sustain their lives, would willingly put themselves under the yoke of another, under their banner, so to speak, willingly to, to work for them so that they could be sustained. Indentured servitude. In fact, the Actual terms that are in your Bible, ebed in the Hebrew and doulos in Greek can be translated servant, slave, bondservant, or even employee. It, similarly, the word baal, master, which we read, can also be uh, translated as boss or employer in that sense. So don't just assume the horrors of what you, you think of first when you read Exodus 21. That's one of our hardest challenges. It was, in many cases, very different, uh, willfully chosen by many uh, and entered into in that way. So let's read through these verses and we'll see uh, how the Lord will unpack them for us. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. 
But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. His master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. We'll unpack that more in a, in a little bit. Skip down to verse 21, or 20 and 21. Uh, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not avenged, for the slave is his money. Verses 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Okay, so some examples here of what the Lord brings to his people. Again, he is not uh, here to endorse or encourage slavery. He is coming to regulate it because of the propensity that he sees in his own people who have been slaves to, to repeat that offense against one another or others. He's calling them to a very different way of working and culture as it grows out. In a sense, you could say it this way. He's, he wants his people to view each other as image bearers rather than as personal property. It's not consistent with the teaching of the Lord to see another person who carries the image of God as your property. In fact, in the property laws, slaves are not mentioned. That's another indicator that this is not property. This is a person. We are to regard each person as an image bearer. Now, a six-year contract, the seventh year you go free. This is something that a slave would come and, and enter into. He, a person would come and say, listen, I need food. I need a place to stay, a place to live. I need work. Uh, I will sell myself under your uh, contract for these six years, and I will work for you. In our day, how do we equate this? What are some examples that come to mind? One thing I was thinking of is like a tour of duty in the military. You go to the military and you say, listen, for the next, typically, what, four years? Is that right? For the next four years, I'm yours. I work for you. You send me where you want. I obey orders, right? You, you, I, you even can take me and put me in situations that are dangerous, and I will... Fulfill my duty. I am volunteering four years. You take me, you own me in that sense. Tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. Now, in return for that, there is room and board and care and, and uh, provision given. One example that we see in the Bible uh, long before the law is given is Jacob and Laban. Uh, this, this young man comes and he needs a, a, a place to work and he sees Rachel and she bats her eyes at him and he's hooked, right? So he goes to her father and he says, what is the price basically? And he says, seven years. Serve me seven years and I will give you my daughter. Now arranged marriages, that's a whole other topic. We'll see a little bit of that in here. So he works for seven years in a sense as a, a slave of Laban. He does his bidding. He is under contract for seven years. At the end of those seven years, Laban pulls uh, the rug out from under him, gives him Leah. And what a tricky thing that was. 
Then he says, listen, if you give me seven more years, I'll give you Rachel. He serves seven days and is able to have Rachel at that point and then finishes those seven years. What an amazing thing to see. This is, this is a common practice of agricultural society. At the end, how did Jacob go out? Look at these verses. Deuteronomy, this comes later, but it, I think, was on display in Jacob and Laban. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free. When you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. What's the basis of this? Exactly where we're at. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. How did they come out of that land? Wealthy, heavy laden with, with goods, not destitute and poor. Therefore, I command you this today. And so he is building a framework for how these people are to relate to one another. What is the agrarian society going to look like for my people in contrast living? Learn from the past and don't repeat it. That's, that's what we're seeing in some of these things. Don't, don't repeat it. Don't be cruel. Don't be harsh. Remember freedom. Now the bondservant, this is an amazing thing. Uh, the bondservant is one who would say, after serving these years, I love my master. I love this home. I love this work. He is good, and I don't want to leave. And maybe he's in a situation where he now has a wife and, and, and children, and he says, listen, I choose to stay for life. I'm yours. I want to work here. This is where I want to be employed. You could, you could see this similarly to a job. If you find a good job that you enjoy, you do what you can to stay put, and keep working. And so he would go, and they would make a covenant in blood, probably to the doors of the synagogue, where uh, an awl, which is a scary word for a sharp metal object, would be taken, and the servant would put his earlobe up on the doorpost. Oh, man, this would hurt. And the master would take and drive it, pierce his ear, and the blood would then be marked on the doorpost of the synagogue. That's an interesting connection, isn't it? Pierced on the wood, blood of the covenant. Forever I am yours. Forever. Hmm. Bond servants of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, this term is used of those who are happy, all-in servants of the Lord. Paul is described this way. Timothy, James, Peter, and Jude. Many in the Old Testament are described as servants of the Lord. We too, my friends, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, rights and protection for women and babies. Let's read verses 7 to 11. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, so he's arranging things. There's a price, a bride price, and he's putting this together. She shall not go out as male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed or bought back. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, 
since he has broken faith with her. This is tremendously important. Women, so oftentimes in cultures, are suppressed and treated terribly. God says, no, not in my people. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. She's a family member in that sense. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So there is a a protection put in place, some rights here for women, which again, this is a long time ago in a culture, God is stepping in. These things were radical. Radical protection. Now, go down to verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What is going on here? The best as I can understand is there is a a fight that breaks out between two men. One is a husband of a woman who is pregnant. And she has a child or children in her womb. And in the scuffle, in the fight, she is hurt. She is hit with something such that she is caused to give premature birth. She miscarries. And the children that are born come out. And if they're born and they're okay, well, then this guy's going to get a hefty fine. However, if those children are born and they are not alive, that man is a dead man. Interesting. Capital punishment is to be enacted. What does this tell us? It tells us once again what the Scriptures reiterate again and again, the sanctity of human life. It's not something that begins at birth. This is a protection for the unborn, a protection for babies in the womb. It's a big deal. And so the Lord says, Take it very seriously when these things happen. Life for life, eye for eye. Capital punishment is to be enacted in this way when children are taken from the womb. What a sobering reminder it is for us in the surrounding context. It's my body my right. Do what I want. Who speaks for the unborn? God does. God does. And so should we. So should we. Now, rights and protection in domestic disputes. Let's pick up at verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. There it is. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place which Uh, to which he may flee. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. You see the echo of the Ten Commandments in case law, functioning, how significant it is to strike a parent, the shattering of the Fifth Commandment, and the consequences are real back in this time. 
Whoever steals a man and sells him, this is what I mentioned earlier, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So again, two guys get in a fight. One guy hits him, takes him down. Uh, The guy recovers. How is he to recover? By the hand of the one who injured him. He is to heal, to help with that process. If that process does not occur well, then other laws are enacted. If he dies, it's a big deal. Now, verses 28 through 36. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be liable. If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, we mentioned this earlier in a sermon from the Ten Commandments, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or a daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give their mastery 30 shekels Uh, their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When a man's ox butts another so that it dies, uh, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. In some of these cases, the punishment is being a limiting uh, reality. If my ox kills your ox, I'm going to kill you. No, 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 no. That's not what God says in that case. There's a lesser response. And some of these situations, we say, whew, Good, that's great. In other situations, to curse your parents is the death penalty. We're like, whoa, wow. Thankfully, we live in a day where uh, this case law is not uh, functioning in our lives. Some of you kids are breathing a little easier. But what do we learn from this, right? What do we learn from this? It's a really big deal to honor your parents. The big deal to care for your neighbor. One thing that came to my mind is that God is not defined by justice and righteousness. He is the one who, who defines justice and righteousness. You see the difference? It's not something that he has. It's who he is and how he acts that set the bar for what is just and the bar for what is righteous. Secondly, this. Our walk with God is always connected to our neighbor. Always. You can't say, I have this just incredible, close walk with the Lord, but I can't stand all these people. Or, I love Jesus, but I hate His church. 
That's not consistent. The reality is, is that we're all sinners. We, we're under the same roof. There's going to be points along the way where we bump into one another. Conflict arises. If you're married, you know this better than anyone. It's going to happen. So you, let your love for God give you what you need to rightly love your neighbor. Hmm. There's a lot in here. And uh, a lot of digging to be done. One of the most important things to do when you're reading through chapter like this is to make sure you don't stand in judgment over Scripture, but you allow Scripture to equip us to understand rightly. We, we are not the judge of God. He is the one who gives His law, and His people benefited greatly in this constraining effect of how they are to in, interact with one another as a society. Response this morning, I want to draw it back to Christ who is the fulfillment of all of our lack, He meets us in that place. I was thinking about how important we, uh, the reality is that we've been set apart by God to be His people. A people not to, to just blur and, and blend into the people all around us, but a people to be set apart wholly unto the Lord. Not so that we might be saved, but because we have been saved by Him. I can't help but go back to this, this ear-piercing ceremony. Uh, I remember taking Gracie to get her ears pierced. Um, the only person who almost passed out in that equation was me. The thing got stuck in her ear and... Oh my goodness, I started sweating and the world, the, the world was spinning. And I, I had to walk out. I'm, I'm, I'm no help at all. Um, so I'm grateful that I live now because I'm not sure how I would handle getting my ear nailed to a chunk of wood. However, think about what these verses show us. You have been set free from sin, Christian, and have become slaves, doulos, of God. That's awesome. That, that's, that is what we are. We are His slaves. His happy, submitted servants. Another passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians. You are not your own. Who owns me? Who owns me? God does. How is that? He bought me with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been redeemed, purchased by God. And there comes a therefore. So then, glorify God in your body. You see the movement, the logic here, the flow? Paul is drawing upon language that we see in our passages. And he's applying it to the effect of God's great salvation in our lives. We are, my friends, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Some of you have, even recently here in baptism, said, you know what, I'm all in. I'm both feet in. Take my ear and nail it to the wood. I'm holding nothing back. I'm yours. Might there be someone here that's holding back? 
a, a toe maybe in the water, saying, yeah, I, I like Jesus, I, I like Him in my life. Mm, I'm not there with that. The call is that He is your Lord, your Master. He owns you, believer. He wants all of you. Hold nothing back. Go both feet in, all in, and trust Him. He is the best master a person could ever long for. Allow Him to take your ear and drive it to the post and serve Him for the rest of your days. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Your Word. We, we thank You for the ministry of Your Word that meets us even in, in questions and, and difficult passages. Lord, we treasure every verse. We want to look at each one. We want to understand the flow of these things and appreciate the teaching and the truth that You have given. Help us, Lord, to learn more of, of who You are, that we might be more true and, and rightfully submitting to You, joyfully tucking under You as our Lord, our Master, our Redeemer, everything. I thank you, Lord, for the history of your people and the way that you work even among us in this place. Teach us how to love you more. I pray that you would teach us how to love one another more. In Jesus' name, amen.